Hello, wonderful humans. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Health Conversations, I'm speaking with Malcolm Saunders. Malcolm lives in Calgary, Canada, and he's the founder of Light Cellar, which is a specialty superfood shop and a teaching kitchen. I'm a big fan of Malcolm's content on Instagram, and I wanted to hear his story and talk about food and current events in Canada at the time of recording. I really enjoyed the conversation with Malcolm. He's got some great insights when it comes to food and ways of knowing Um, and we hope that you find the information useful in your own life. This episode of the show is brought to you by TFC App. In 2019, we realized that the availability of information when it came to health was a bit overwhelming, and that platforms like YouTube and Instagram are distraction traps, so we decided to create our own platform. TFC App was about creating a tool that facilitates time well spent. We don't try to steal your attention. We simply try to make sure that the time you spend browsing health content Uh, that we offer through the app is time spent improving your health awareness. It's a self-funded platform and is still currently free for anyone to use. And if you visit the footcollective.app, which is a website, uh, you can access the iOS or web-based version. And, you know, the app is a constant work in progress and we plan to continue working on the experience and improving the user experience as time goes on indefinitely. This episode is also sponsored by TFC Shop your one-stop online store for balance beams, natural footwear, and foot health accessories. If you visit tfc-shop.com, you can check out our growing selection of products that we offer, which all help you live a more natural life. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by the Roasters Pack. If you're into coffee, this Canadian company offers a subscription service that delivers you fresh beans to your door each month, along with the story behind each of the craft roasters that the beans come from. If you check out theroasterspack.com, use the code FOOT at checkout, you'll get seven bucks off your first month. Hope you enjoy this podcast. That's it for sponsors. Let's dig in. It's the TFC Audio Project. Hello, wonderful beings. Welcome back to the TFC Audio Project. On this episode of Health Conversations, I'm speaking with Malcolm Saunders. Malcolm is a fellow Canadian who runs a company called Light Cellar Foods out of Calgary. Uh, he's been one of my favorite humans to listen to on Instagram during these weird times and, uh, really excited for our conversation today. Malcolm, thanks for taking the time this morning and welcome to the show. Hey, right on. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Uh, so maybe, you know, seeing as this is your first time on the audio project, um, I'd love to start with you just telling the people a little bit about yourself, you know, what gets you out of bed each morning, what you love, what you're learning at the moment. And, uh, and then we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, big, big theme through my life is uh, food, nutrition, and where I've arrived in life from my own journey. And this is oftentimes what happens is uh, you solve a problem for yourself, and then you turn around and you help others uh, figure it out. <laughs> I can relate to that a lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I got kind of thrown into the world of food and nutrition uh, consciously when I was 16. And it, it came from a decision I've been thinking about for a while uh, that, you know, finally one day I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. It's a Tuesday afternoon. Unlike any other, I'd come home. Mom was making, uh, you know, dinner. She's, she's Scottish. So it was some, some version of meat and potatoes. I could smell nice. chocolate chip cookies cooling <laughs> on the counter. You're making <laughs> and, me hungry. <laughs> yeah. And I, I says, mom, I'm going to become a vegetarian. You're still going to eat this supper, aren't you? <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah she was very supportive it turned into a bit of a, a coming of age speech you know she was going through a divorce at the time and she's Malcolm I, I support you but but I can't help you so right. you're you're if this is your choice you're, you're on your own 
And literally up until that point, food to me was whatever was quick, easy, and tasted good. Mm -hmm. uh, my favorite meal of the day uh, were breakfast cereals. I love Fruit Loops, Lucky Charms. Um, you know, eventually I got into the, the healthier stuff like rice, uh, corn bran and Weedabix. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I thought at the time. Um, the extent of my culinary abilities where I knew how to make uh, microwave pizza and Pop-Tarts. Nice. And Deep so repertoire. <laughs> right <laughs> and so i started off on okay now I'm, I'm responsible for for feeding myself so i went from meat potatoes and junk food to just potatoes and junk food and uh, it didn't go so well <laughs> <laughs> and my inspiration to to be a vegetarian at the time and in spoiler alert i'm not one now but we'll we'll, we'll get into it we'll get into all that um, good. was born out of this uh this kind of inspiration to, to do something, you know, most particularly to the environment. Uh, David Suzuki was a big hero at the time. And uh, yeah, just, you know, and there's so much more information now. Gosh, like we're just inundated with, you know, right. what's happening to the world and how, you know, especially a vegetarian diet is, is the way to go. And you can watch the documentaries, read books, et cetera. And back at that, that time, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm in. If this is what I can do to kind of, you know, show up and help the world, like I was so committed. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, very quickly, barely early on, had a lot of blood sugar issues and realized like, okay, you know, my diet is, is not sustaining me. And if, and if I want to, you know, be able to sustain myself and uh, live with these kind of ideals, I got to figure it out. So right. that's actually what started my food journey. And, and like I mentioned, it took me more than, it was almost, yeah, 10, 12 years that I went down that path, different rabbit holes, you know, from vegetarian to vegan to raw vegan, just trying out all these different diets uh, to try and try and feel good mm -hmm. based upon my ideals. And I learned a ton along the way, learned how to prepare food myself from scratch. Oftentimes when we shift our diets, we go back to whole foods making things ourselves, and it was a huge education uh for me in, in learning how to feed myself and you know where i'm at today i follow my gut more than nutrition trends uh, yep. i give myself no labels there's no diet that i follow uh you if, if i were going to take on any label it would be more of a, a flexitarian uh, an opportunivore mm -hmm. in that regard nice yeah, for sure. And, and it's such a, it's such a better way to be. And I learned, learned a lot along the way. And yeah, so in that journey, started to kind of turn around and, and share what I was learning. And I, I really, my mission, one of my big missions is to help people find and learn how to craft their own food and medicine. So that's, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, 15 years, uh, professionally, almost 20 now. Um, so wow own a little uh, superfood shop here in Calgary. So it is a retail store, which I, I never envisioned opening, opening and owning, but uh, that's kind of how that journey evolved from, you know, teaching classes, like how to, how to ferment, how to make your own sauerkraut, you know, how to upgrade the chocolate that you consume to, you know, contain medicinal mushrooms and superfoods, natural sweeteners, uh, to how to craft elixirs and it was more this idea of, of teaching and I would just run you know classes out of my basement or my uh, father-in-law you know he has got a giant house kitchen at the time and so I was using that and people were like oh well, where, do, where do I get the ingredients and as well you know I order in bulk and I've, I've got some here available and oh sure they take some home and then two weeks later they're like Malcolm I'm out like where do I get more <laughs> And uh, this was kind of pre, you know, internet and uh, robust web stores uh, by any stretch of the word. Uh, so mm -hmm. 
I was like, okay, well, you know, I've got more in the basement, you know, just come on by. And uh, so eventually we formalized. Yeah, come on by. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we eventually formalized it into, you know, once a week I would open up the basement, you know, and, and, and I'd maybe I'd teach a class, maybe I have some shop that I made that I would sell, but, you know, here are the ingredients. And uh, my wife at the time was doing colonics. So we, uh, we joked, we were kind of a feed them and a clean them uh, business. <laughs> That's great. It's so funny how life sort of engineers a pathway for you that you never would have foreseen. But, um, you know, a lot of stories that I've heard of people who are working in a space that I can really relate with and that resonates with me, they all start from personal experience. They all start from a personal challenge or struggle or decision um, and sort of materialize in a way that your journey creates the foundation to be able to then share with others and sort of help others filter through all the, the chaff, right? And because, I mean, it used to be that information was hard to come by, but now it's like yeah. information inundates you so much that people almost get fatigued because there's so much stuff to go through to discover truth. And it's one of those things where having someone that can be your guide that is coming from a place of personal experience instead of, you know, research or degree or whatever it is, I think that's very powerful today. And I think uh, it just allows you to relate to people and food, you know, as we've sort of ventured at TFC beyond feet and hips into all pillars of health, food is one of those pillars that is so filled with unnecessary complexity in terms of nutrition science. And the average, I mean, as someone who has a health professional degree, I'm confused and I understand the body probably better than the average person. So how can the average eater navigate these crazy waters? Uh, you know, with every diet, there's like a million diets, million ways of eating, and you're getting told all this, these things. And I think it's sometimes hard for people to watch a documentary and be able to hold a bit of space before they adopt that perspective, right? And they, that documentary probably has, or that video might have an underlying motive or perspective and you don't have to jump in full force to that perspective. It's just a piece of data. And I think it's sometimes hard for people to dissociate that. So um, that's awesome that it started in your basement. You just had people over and then, and then yeah. now it's sort of evolved into something obviously much bigger. Yeah. So at that, at that time it was getting a little much, it wasn't just the Sunday. It was now, Hey, I'm in the neighborhood on a Tuesday. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, be, I became known as, as, as the dealer, you know, uh, yeah. got to go to this dude's basement and run back, you knock twice. So the nutrient dealer. <laughs> yeah. Word of mouth was beginning to, uh, you know, pick up, but people would hit a barrier. So we decided to move it out the house, get a retail space. And so that's been more than 11 years that we've been kind of, kind of a staple uh, in the community and yeah, just trying to simplify it. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I love what you said and that's definitely um, relatable to, to me. And so now my mission is uh, to help simplify it. Like, yes, I, I have nutrition training and degrees, but I don't say that I'm not a nutritionist because that implies that in order for you to figure it out, you need some sort of degree because you know, I right. went to school and uh, you know, Michael Pollan was a big uh, influence of mine, New York Times food writer. He's written a number of books that have been turned into documentaries. And I remember him, you know, kind of relating this point that we just over intellectualize nutrition. People go into the grocery store looking for antioxidants. They look right, for, right. you know, and it's like, it's like, what is that? How do you relate to that? And yeah. the kind of the way out for me is it's, it's coming back to our senses, literally, mm -hmm. you know, food that, that looks good, that smells good, that tastes good, um, that you 
in, in all ways, you know, can try and have more of a connection to whether that's, that's the farmer or just mm-hmm. kind of learning the story about it. And that our body is innately intelligent. There's so much wisdom there that we can rely on our body to navigate through this world and make good choices for us. Now, kind of right. the precursor to that is, yeah, if you take in, you know, Malcolm as a 16 year old and says, you know, don't worry, just follow your gut, just eat whatever, right? Like I would have kept on that path and, and <laughs> I did, but the body was speaking to me all the time, right? Like right. The, the, those energy crashes, those kind of like, you know, lightheaded fainting spells. That was the body speaking to me. And fortunately, you know, I was listening. It just took a long time to get there and it took a long time to get out of my kind of intellectualness of what I thought was right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for know, me, food, learning about food was actually, I would call it more unlearning because I had to unlearn. And even like, funny, funnily enough, learning about movement involved me unlearning everything I learned in physiotherapy school um, in order to truly understand like the simple yet extremely powerful things. Um, and it's, it's just so funny how sometimes to better understand something or get clarity, you have to unlearn more than actually seek more knowledge. Um, right. And that's what provides the clarity to, to enable action. And I think a lot of people are just almost the obstacle is being overwhelmed and not being able to get enough clarity to actually divert your energy to, towards action, towards actually doing something and changing behaviors because it's so hard to know what behaviors to change. Um, and yeah, like one thing I loved when I uh, checked out your website, your instructor bio at the Light Cellar Learning Kitchen well, was to help people connect more deeply with their food so they can feel really good about eating, creating, and sharing food. And I, I read that three or four times and I was like, that is extremely powerful. And I feel like that is all encompassing of what is needed with food is, um, you know, sharing instead of teaching or preaching um, and getting people to reconnect with food as not just something for fuel, like something that actually hasn't, and Michael Pollan talks about this, how we've disconnected from the pleasure aspect of food, where eating nutrient-dense, fresh, delicious food should actually have an element of pleasure, um, should actually have an element of connection with sharing that and preparing it as a community. And we've just sort of taken this overly utilitarian perspective of food, where it's not even food anymore, it's just a combination of weird words, oh, I need this protein or carb or whatever. It's like, we need to get back to eating food. And that requires us to dissociate from all of the unnecessary complexity that nutrition science in all of its merit and well intention has given us, because let's be real. It's a very, like, I feel like nutrition science is where lobotomies were in brain science. Like it's not the be all and end all. So we need to, it's, it's one piece of the puzzle, but it seems like this happens with so many realms of health. It's like, if you have a thousand piece puzzle that you're trying to build in order to actually get a clear picture one piece of that thousand piece puzzle might be a research study or, you know, the science. And it's like, you need to take a, you need to keep in mind the whole picture of the puzzle is what's important. Not that one single puzzle piece that is part of the puzzle, but it is not the be all and end all. And you can get just swallowed by focusing on those individual pieces and the conflicts between them. Whereas it's like, as an eater, as a human, you have to know very little and the heuristics you need to know are so simple that like a 12 year old can go into a grocery store and be like, I kind of know what to buy. Like if it doesn't have a label, it's probably good for me. Right. It's like so many things have just become so complicated. So 
Um, sure. And so I've, I've developed, uh, so I've got two insights to share. Um, one on that idea that, you know, kind of the unlearning that you end up going into this with, you know, any field and mm -hmm. uh, this kind of technical knowledge. So I want to touch upon that. And then I want to touch upon uh, this, this kind of tool that I've developed that will allow anyone to look at any food and know whether it's right for them, you know, Ooh, in, I like in, that. Kind of a, in a deep way. So Let's start with the first one, and I learned this going through uh, music school. So, you know, as an adolescent, like really what caught my heart, caught my, spoke to my soul and was all I ever wanted to do was, was play music. And uh, so, you know, I had a father like many who says, you know, Malcolm, what, what are you going to do after uh, high school? You know, and this expectation of, you know, you're going to go to university, you're going to get good grades, you're going to get to get a good yeah. job, to get well Follow the script. Right? Yeah, right. So uh, I was like, okay, if, I, if I'm, I'm going to post-secondary, like, like music is, is my world. It's my path. So I went and did a jazz music degree. Uh, and I was the type of musician that up until that point was, was more from ear, you know, just kind of learning just by jamming, just by hanging out with friends and, and listening to music and just kind of exploring it more intuitively. And, and we've all mm -hmm. had friends probably that are more on that side of the spectrum. And there's, there's the other side of the spectrum where it's, you know, like my wife, she was raised, you know, learning piano and it was in a kind of a classical music context and she can create beautiful music when she puts the, the sheet in front of her and, you know, plays out the piece and, and it can often be quite complex and, you know, there's so much theory and everything going on and, and yeah that's that's great it's wonderful it's a different expression and yeah. so going into music school I went from this kind of like heart ear based approach to this kind of more intellectual approach right really understanding the theory of music and uh, how especially jazz music you know the complexity of it understanding the heads and you know the framework for it and mm -hmm. what was interesting is a lot of us, um, you know, young folks who had this love, this passion for music, got lost in the technicalities, mm -hmm. just like we've been talking about. We got lost in the kind of the nutrition details. And it literally, right. it took an outside uh, facilitator. Um, he wrote a book called Effortless Mastery, a man named Kenny Werner. And he taught us how to play just one note, you know, just, just one note, just actually just play that note and basically take us from our head back into our heart to be able to feel the music, to be able to hear the music again. Um, and I don't know, it's sometimes humans, it takes going to those extremes to then find yeah. that, that, that balance, that middle. Right. And jazz music is representative of, to me, of, you know, the best kind of musician where they, they bring together both those worlds. They bring together, you know, the technical, understanding of the theory and they can literally play some of the most technical music and some of it gets so intellectual and so out there that you know you, the average person can't even hear it like free jazz right. it just sounds like noise but to them it's just like wow it's like the pinnacle of like you know intellectualism of, of how we're going to do this and arrange these time signatures and blah, 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 blah. Um, but yet you know jazz can also have the most spontaneous magical amazing improvisations right so mm. you 
when you start the song, you play, you play the head, which is, okay, here's the framework, here's the chord changes, here's the melody, da 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 And again, it's quite complex to be able to learn that, to be able to play that. But as soon as that kind of introduction in the head is finished, like, boom, it's into solos. And now it's the most kind of wild, spontaneous, intuitive, just free expression. And it takes, it's having taken understanding that kind of intellectual framework, you know, kind of learn the rules to go beyond the rules, you know, in that sense. So, right. You know, what I learned going through music school of kind of harmonizing, whether you want to call it the right brain, the left brain, or the head and the heart, um, getting to that space. And I think, you know, nutrition can be the same. And probably what you've experienced in your field is the same is you go through that kind of intellectual understanding. But at the end of the day, it's really about, you know, being present, being in the moment and that intuitive uh, wisdom to come through. And, you know, oftentimes our culture, society, we've, we've been favoring that one, that kind of reason, logic, ration, science, like, great, which is wonderful. I mean, there's mm -hmm. so much that we are indebted to because of that type of learning. But, you know, our ego gets in the way. It's like, oh, we're the only, you know, species that thinks like this. And, you know, we're <laughs> right. farly superior. Um, but yet we've, we've kind of lost a huge amount of this intuitive way of being in the world, you know, more an older uh, wisdom with, with knowledge to the heart. One of, one of my favorite herbalists, Stephen Herod Buhner, uh, he's revealed so much to me and, and it was kind of in, in his words he has expressed this. He was looking at herbal traditions from all around the world and just marveling at like, well, how did they know this, right? Uh, right. Another author, uh, Wade Davis, he, he in his book, One River, Journeys and Explorations in the Amazon Rainforest, about two ethnobotanists, generations, uh, comes across like ayahuasca in that. And he says, you know, by modern standard, you know, scientific methods, there's no way no way you would ever come to the same conclusion that these people did this complex right. chemistry mixed in a certain way. I mean, you think about all the plants just in the Amazon rainforest. I know it's so get, crazy. It blows my you, mind. Yeah. That you could choose that you combine just in the right way, you know, to yeah. produce this effect. It's, it's like through our scientific method, you would never get there. You would actually, you would never get there just isolating one variable at a time to then go, Oh yeah, that's what that does. Um, so, so Buner, you know, knowing that and having his own experience of like, wow, how do all these cultures around the world know that sage dispels bad spirits, right? In, in their terms. Um, right. what, again, and they come to that conclusion almost independently, which is yeah. like, they don't have the internet to see like, oh, what's the other tribe doing? Oh, they're saying sage is good. Like, like, it's always very interesting to see how this ancestral wisdom through, you know, decades and de thousands of years of basically trial and error. Um, and passed down through story of these cultural traditions has resulted in the most advanced discoveries of healing and health and, and foods and medicinal foods way beyond, like you said, whatever science can deliver. And I yeah. agree. It's not, you know, it often gets into a conversation where it's science or wisdom, science or tradition, and it's never in this or that. It's like, these are both two ends of a continuum. And if you're only at one end and refuse to even entertain the perspective of what exists on the other side, you're never going to find the balance that gives you the most clear understanding and the most effective use of these principles. And I think we, you know, like, it's like the work, we always talk about the work play continuum. Like we've gotten into this mindset of work when it comes to movement. Literally we call what we do in a gym, a workout. The, the okay. word work is in what our morning practice is. And, and we sort of lost touch with play, which is at the other end of the continuum. It's like hyper-structured, radically unstructured, 
you know, like something you feel you need to do to change your body, something you love to do to explore your body. And it's, it's a matter of rebalancing the continuum. It's never one or the other, but we need to recontextualize and get a bigger picture. And um, I think that a lot of people have literally lost the ability to, to communicate with what their bodies are telling them, right? You, you said how your body was telling you these things, but if you're not listening to the body or if you're literally so disconnected from even being able to feel intuitively these things and try and be open-minded to trying different things to see how that changes the way your body communicates to you, then you're often losing a lot of the most important signals that only you can feel, right? Your doctor cannot help you reinterpret these signals. Um, they are literally trained to not interpret any signals. They are the people who are the knowers and you have to go to them for help. And, um, yeah. And actually like the way I crossed paths with you, I was doing these sort of mushroom experiments in the office where I was growing lion's mane and uh, shiitake and oyster mushrooms just to like, you know, I just literally was like, can I grow mushrooms and make omelets with them? I think it would be a cool experiment. And then one of the people in our community said, you got to follow this guy as a fellow Canadian. And then that's what got me on, onto you. And um, yeah. And, and I agree with the whole intellectual versus intuition continuum. And I think, I think when you were explaining jazz there, there are so many parallels with health that can come into that um, where we, you know, we over intellectualize things thinking that we are the, the highest species capable of these things. When in reality, we're losing the most important stuff when we, when we go over to just that side. So for sure. So it's, it's developing one's intellect, but it's also using that other faculty of knowing, which is, which is feeling, which is like literally coming to our senses, using our senses of sight, smell, touch. And again, we can do this with food. We do it all the time. And then that corresponding feeling that's, 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 that's using the heart as, as an organ of perception. So Stephen Buter, when he, was asking these questions and he's speaking to, you know, indigenous people. And, and that word indigenous just means to be of a place. It doesn't, you know, necessarily mean, okay, someone primitive or living in, you know, the jungle. Uh, right. Some of the work by Wesson A. Price looking at traditional cultures and their diet, you know, was like the Scottish, it was the Scandinavian, it was people in Africa, it was all around the world. And mm -hmm. so he said, how did they come to this, this complex level of knowledge? And, and in fact, it wasn't through trial and error. Like that, that is a part of our journey. That is part of our process. And I think that exists more in the kind of the scientific realm. That's, that's the method, right? And uh, mm -hmm. he, he said that the plants told them that literally there was a communication with the plants. That's how mm -hmm. they know. Right? Wow. It actually wasn't through trial and error. It was they received direct knowledge, direct wisdom from the plants, from their bodies. And as you mentioned, right, like our body is speaking to us all the time. We just need to learn the language. And mm -hmm. it's through this kind of more intuitive sense of being that we can learn that language, that we can communicate with our bodies, we can communicate with plants. And from there, yeah, we can then take that into the scientific realm, right? The, the whole process starts with, with an inference, right? It's like, hmm, you know, like I wonder, right? And then you begin to kind of test it out one variable at a time. But mm. foundationally, we need to, to start there. And I think that's one of the biggest things as a culture, as a society, is we need to kind of look at, honor, and recognize. And uh, really happy our conversation has gone in that direction. And so here's, here's a little tool. I, I primarily use it for food, for nutrition, but you could use it for anything. So I say, you know, with this, I, I describe it as a, as a lens. So it's a food scope, which is a, an, an acronym um, through which you can look at any food, any diet and know if it's right for you in, in that kind of most broadest holistic view. So 
food scope s we're going to start with science right and we've definitely been talking about that it's amazing it's wonderful um Although, as you mentioned, we need to recognize, especially nutrition science, is limited. So it's only just one lens, and we can get a lot from it. It can tell us, you know, what's in a food, right? Like, what are the macronutrients, the micronutrients, you know, the finer, like, phytochemicals of broccoli, da-da-da-da-da. And science is continuing to, you know, reveal that as we kind of, like, dig deeper and explore more and more. Um, so what's in a food, and what is its effect, you know, on our, on our body? right short term long term uh science is is great for for revealing that and paying uh yeah bringing bring attention to that I, so i think there almost needs to be an asterisk beside the word science now and in a couple contexts i find it's like science does not just equal a research study like i always my perspective is that science is a mindset of continuing to try and explore to question to evaluate it is a mindset and a process it is not one research study is not the science it's part of the science that's continuing to evolve and i also think that we've almost seen this sort of shift where people are losing faith in science because of you know like it'll be a topic that we get on at the end of this where it's really easy to find research to prove whatever you want. And if people take that as the only source of knowledge needed in order to say, this is the truth, um, it's going to be radically out of context. So it's like, how good is the science is it, are we talking about science, the process, or are we talking about a single research paper uh, where people read the, the abstract and the, and the results and think that that is the be all and end all. So, I think that we need to take a way broader view of even the term science because that has, I found it's sort of lost faith with people that I speak with uh, when in reality, it's not science that we should be losing faith in. It's, it's taking a deeper look at what kind of science and what are we even talking about when we say science? Because um, yeah. people conflate a research paper with that is science. It's like, that is part of science, but that is not the science. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And, and we can all be scientists like, you know, right. with, with ourselves and with our own bodies and we can use that scientific method. And it's, I love what you said. It's not relegated to the realm of, of doctors and lab coats and studies and journal right. of medicine, right. Which, which likes to have this kind of exclusivity uh, of it. So yeah, absolutely. Um, science, it's great. It's wonderful. And, and we've definitely talked about some of those, those pitfalls that people can get caught in when you just use that, that lens one alone. So we need all the other lenses. So the next one, the C in scope is culture. Mm. And especially with food, I mean, there was a point in kind of my nutrition journey, I'd gotten so confused. I'd been traveling in India, uh, I'd come back, uh, I had, had parasites, like we got really sick there. And I just just wasn't feeling good. I was still struggling with the vegetarian diet and trying to align it, you know, with kind of environmental and spiritual goals. And uh, kind of an elder of mine who's a herbalist uh, went and saw him and he says, Malcolm, he says, if you ever get confused about what to eat, just go back to what your ancestors ate. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. And Michael Pollan, who we talked about earlier, you know, he says culture has more to teach us than does government, industry, right? Like yep. there's, there's wisdom there. And what, especially when it comes to food, it is, it's, it's wisdom that has kept people well, that has allowed humans to successively 
uh, reproduce, you know, generation after generation and, you know, to the point that we are now. And there's a lot of wisdom there. Now, we mm -hmm. can't look at it and say, oh, it's the be all end all, right? I'm just going to go back and eat how my ancestors ate. Well, we live in a different right. time. There's a different context. I see a lot of people yeah. that are into, you know, the paleo and we imagine, you know, what our ancestors ate or, right. you know, the Weston A. Price where they'll, you know, like they'll eat, you know, like sausage, bacon, eggs, you know, like this huge, like high fat, high protein, because that's what my ancestors ate. And then they get in their car, they drive to the office and they sit the entire day, right? So <laughs> you're kind of cherry picking which ancestral parts you want, to, you want to adopt without realizing that like every adopting the right amount of everything is actually where health comes from. And I, I think, um, you know, in the Blue Zone Solution, they, they talk about these different uh, diets that are adopted by different cultures with people with, that have amazing health, right? They have a, a great lifespan, a great health span, and their diets vary radically, um, which I think is a testament to the fact that humans are amazingly adaptive. But the one similarity that all their diets have and all their lifestyles have, for example, is that it's natural. It is a way of living that we have lived for a long period of time. Some people are all carbs, right? If you live in Costa Rica, maybe you eat like literally all carbs, corn, beans. Um, whereas if you live in, in Italy, it might be very different. Um, but they all have good health. So it's not actually about what you eat. It's you have to go to the deeper principles of like, where is it coming from? Is it stuff we're actually supposed to be eating? Is it real food? And so we get so, like you said, so caught up in the paleo or the vegan or all this stuff. It's like, maybe you should just be your own food scientist, like you said. <laughs> For sure. So culture, um, one of the great insights I've, I've had around culture is, is in fact that there are four food groups. So every single culture around the world consumes foods from these four food groups. And of course, they are not the ones we learned in school, uh, right. not, not the Canada Food Guide. Um, so if we want to just dive into that cultural lens just a little bit more, and, yeah. and, and this is not an idea original to me, maybe the first person I heard share this was Daniel Vitalis, but it's... It's, if you look at cultures around the world, there is a four food groups. And in fact, there's a fifth we can get into as well. Um, so you can think of these as like the, the kingdoms of life. So we got plants, animals, bacteria, and fungi. So those literally are the four food groups. And, and maybe we'll just kind of just take 10 seconds here. Can you think of anything that you consume that's outside of those four food groups? That's not a plant, that's not an animal, a bacteria, or a fungi. And as those are listening at home, uh, just to kind of give context, plants, pretty obvious, animal foods, pretty obvious, we'll go into that. Bacteria, so that's our fermented foods, you know, the, the microbiome, the realm of probiotics. And then fungi, which you mentioned as well, which is super exciting, um, is the kind of this underworld of the bacteria and the fungi. Uh, it's the future, this is the future, right? With the research around the microbiome or understanding of I bacteria. I agree, it's mind-blowing. Fungi as well, which has been a source for millennia of humans as a source of both food and medicine, right? Oatsy the Iceman, I'm sure you've heard of. He's the, the, the human specimen that we found that has been the oldest and the most well-preserved. He was found up in the, in the Swiss Alps, you know, basically literally like frozen. And we're able to look at everything that he had on him. And he had three species of fungi. And this, this is a guy that's, you know, nomadic. He's traveling. And it was essential that he had those three species species of fungi uh, to be able to survive. So fungi has been an ally of humans throughout millennia and just now kind of in the modern age, you know, 
in our Western culture, we're, we're kind of rediscovering that and how incredible they are. So, and within the kingdom of fungi, we have, that's all the way from single cell yeast, like Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is, is pervasive. Again, Michael Pollan reference, he says, you know, people say that uh, dog is man's best friend, but he says, I disagree. I think it's Saccharomyces cerevisiae. This is <laughs> that, that, you know, rises our bread and ferments our beer, right? It's, it's, it's ubiquitous. Right. And, and just as much as we've been, you know, corn and bean farmers and, you know, raising chickens and sheep, we've also have this, had this long history relationship with different bacteria and fungi. Guy. We've domesticated many of those species and mm-hmm. they come into our own kind of human fold. And, you know, when we speak about culture, like literally different cultural diets, a lot of it is based upon that foundation of, of bacteria and microorganisms. Um, so those absolutely key and critical as food groups. And what I love about this is that this kind of idea, it doesn't tell you what to eat, how much to eat, when to eat. Right. It's a very broad framework that, you know, as, as, a, as a hardcore raw vegan, you know, in those days, if I'd actually objectively looked at that and gone, yeah, you know what, that's, that's right. And uh, this, this, is, this is the human diet. This is the idea of the omnivore, right? And, and I was big into kind of yoga and spirituality for a long time. And, you know, you're trying to read all these high states of omnipresence and omnipotence and, and all of a sudden. <laughs> so the omni fit in there really well. <laughs> yeah, omnivore, right? It's, it's the most kind of like, you know, enlightened way to be. Right. Well, I love uh, Joel Furman talks about uh, being a nutritarian. And right. I just think that that's a beautiful, it, it plays no favor to any type of food. Just eat nutrient dense foods. And that, that, that's something that I've started to you know, I don't like identifying with labels, but I think that to me makes a whole lot of sense because it's the, the most nonspecific and in the word has the most important, one of the most important elements of the physical aspect of food, which is like, just eat nutrients, like take in nutrients that your body needs. And, you know, I, I'm really curious, what's the fifth category? It's not foods like products, is it? Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so the fifth are, are the four elements. So we look at earth, air, fire, water. Those are, those are literally nutrients that, that we need. And, and obviously water is pretty obvious. Air is pretty obvious. And again, if, if we have doubt about the ability of our body to tell us what nutrients are good for us, let's, let's take the example of water. We've all had that experience. I mean, gosh, like I live in Calgary, you know, just the east side of the Rockies. We have some of the best water in the world here. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I've, I've traveled to Florida. I've been to Vegas. I've been to LA and I've tasted the water there. And it's like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. If you can call it water. It's like, if you can call it water. Right. So yeah. there's, there's very just different types, you know, um, and then our, our single most important nutrient, you know, air. And, and I know air just kind of diminishes what that really is, but, you know, mm-hmm. oxygen and, and that whole experience. I mean, imagine for a moment you're, you're on the, you're on the beach, you know, it's like, it's a beautiful kind of sunset evening or you're deep in the forest and there's a waterfall, right? Just like instinctively, you just want to breathe that in. You can sense the life right. force, sense the prana. Now contrast yourself. You're in downtown Toronto. It's rush hour. You're crammed into a subway car with a bunch of other people and you're not breathing very deep, are you? <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and what you are breathing is probably not, not the best stuff either. Well, exactly. The body in, intuitively, instinctively knows, right? Like when you are in that forest environment, you are on the beach, there is that, 
And that's the most, you know, vital and essential nutrient we have. And, and your body just wants to take that in right. uh, versus the downtown. It becomes more that survival mechanism of like, okay, I'm not going to breathe too deep right now. because Right. It's almost like, you know, you should protect yourself by not taking in a huge amount of whatever <laughs> you're taking in. And it's like so counter to what humans are supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we almost train ourselves to do that where then, you know, that kind of coupled with the, the positions that we, the fixed positions we put ourselves in throughout the whole day that limits our ability to even take a deep breath if we wanted to. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. So, yeah. so there you go. science, culture, culture has the four food groups, uh, yeah. four food categories plus one. Um, yeah. Right. And it's, it's funny mm -hmm. because there's a lot of quote unquote food that you find in a local supermarket that doesn't really fit into many of those categories. Um, which is something I don't, I don't think people fully understand. It's like when you say just eat real food, it kind of falls on deaf ears sometimes. And when you go deeper into explaining like, okay, well, here's how you actually figure out if it's real food. Um, you know, real food doesn't mean something you can put in your mouth and consume without dying. It literally means something that actually has nutrients and came from the planet. Um, and I think that's a very foreign definition for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and the more that we move towards real food, the more that we're able to rely on and trust the language of our body, those natural cues and clues uh, from our food, because, you know, we have so much edible food like substances, which are not food at all. They're edible, they're mm -hmm. food like, and there's some kind of substance um, that can trick our body uh, into, you know, giving us the wrong clues and cues and signals. And, and even internally, if our microbiome is off, if we have kind of an imbalance of candida, we'll be craving different things than, you know, a, a normal healthy microbiome. So the more that we can shift away from, you know, artificial processed and, and the I want to be careful of that word process because I used to think processing was a dirty word, uh, anything processed. But in fact, as, as humans, as eaters, that's what we do. That's what we need to do. We need to process food. It's not all about just eating, you know, carrots out of the earth and apples off the tree. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so, right. So it's like mass processing or like heavily, um, yeah, unnaturally processed because, you know, processing cooking is a form of processing food, totally. right? Like cutting is a form of processing food. Um, but I think it's very different than the like industrial level processing where literally it's going through like a, a science experiment machine to have something come out on the other side, like, like Gogurt. It's like, yeah, yeah. what a liquid that comes in. I love Michael Pollan's thing where he's like, is that toothpaste? Is that food? What is that? Like, who knows what that is? <laughs> Show that to like three generations ago. And they're like, I don't know what this is, but I am not eating it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think you nailed it. Like, I think the, the biggest wrong turn we took as, as our own culture and society was the industrialization of our food supply. You know, industrialization, there's been some fantastic, amazing innovations that have come out of that. But, you know, again, it's that pendulum swing. It's like we went way too far industrializing yep. our food supply you know, making choices and influencing our system for reasons other than health, right? It was okay, we yeah. want efficiency, we want speed, we want shelf life, we want all these factors other than actually health. And, and that's where we're, we're, we're left at. So the more we can come back to, you know, quote unquote, natural foods, um, we can, yeah, uh, retune our body to, uh, to speak to us, you know, using those, those 
cues and clues um, from from the natural foods. And, and that's why I keep saying it's like it's literally coming back to your senses, like where your, your mm-hmm. body can see it, it can smell it, it can taste it, you know, real good whole natural food. Uh, and that's that's that intuitive part getting re-engaged again. Yeah, I think re this whole element of recalibration, I found so true, like something uh, like my taste buds for sugar has changed drastically once I started to eat less refined sugar and more fresh uh, things like fruits, like literally a strawberry is the most vibrant tasting thing I've ever had when it's fresh. And it like still shocks me like this is better than candy. Why didn't I tune into this earlier? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. So of the food scope we got science we got culture the next would be o which is uh other people's opinions or experiences and you mentioned this uh right off the top as we were talking about this is it is helpful uh in this day and age to have someone um share their their knowledge their wisdom their experience their journey um and you know we are social creatures we're social beings we learn from others and of course, that has been co-opted, right? Like, you know, as, as a young kid, I, I loved all those breakfast cereals because that's what Wayne Gretzky eats, right? He's on the box. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's powerful, powerful learning in there. And I always love to share the story of Victoria Patenko, who um, her family came from, you know, uh, communist Soviet Union over to America. There's four of them. And, you know, from a, from a system that was kind of breaking down, falling apart, and, you know, the, the food access and choices were extremely limited uh, to America, you know, land of the free and abundance, and everything is so scientific. You go into the grocery store, and like you were saying, it's like you look on the side of the box, and it tells you exactly what nutrients are in there. And right. It's great. And so they just dove right in. It's like, wow, let's like look at all this abundance. And within a couple of years, they all got chronically ill. Like, you know, the mother was obese. The father developed arthritis. You know, one of the kids had diabetes. And, you know, they all went to the doctor and told this, this is your lot in life. This is, this is what you get, right? And here's your medication right. and, and carry on. And she had enough sense within her to say, you know, like that can't be. And so she kind of went out like literally onto the street. She would be in a bank, line up in the bank and she would look at people and she's like, you look healthy. Like, what are you doing? And she'd start. Yeah. What's your secret? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, what's your secret? And she started to kind of piece things together and wow. uh, yeah, like using others' experiences. One of the things that I, I love is we talk about water. You know, one of the best, amazing, most amazing experiences, like you said, like a, like a fresh strawberry, nothing compares. Well, spring water, you know, water right fresh out of the ground, filtered by the earth. Like, ah, oh, it's unbelievable. You've never had, you've never experienced water like that in, until you do. Um, well, I can relate to that because I bought this Santivia filter that alkalizes and remineralizes, does all this stuff to water. And until I took a sip of that, I actually didn't know what good water tasted like. <laughs> like I knew, I think I had a really good under understanding of an array of chemicals that water can taste like. And I was like, I don't know which one's legit. And then I had some of that and I'm like, wow, this tastes very different, but it kind of tastes very refreshing. And then, like you said, you drink water straight from from the outdoors, from a spring that was naturally filtered with earth and with nature. And it's like, okay, that's the, that's the baseline. That's what I need to compare all other waters to. And it's like, wow, that's very different from water. I drink from a water bottle and you know, like it's, yeah. So that's, that's my approach to nutrition now is is set the bar really high that, you know, like you just naturally want to go there. Right. Like when I, the first Mm -hmm. time I tasted, you know, like fresh made from scratch, you know, like handmade homemade chocolate, 
I no longer thought about candy bars ever. Like, right. Yeah, right? It right. was no longer a struggle. It was no, I can't have those, can't eat those. It's like, well, that, cause that's what I want. I know what yep. the experience can be. The same with water. And it becomes now this quest to kind of upgrade your diet to move to that level and adding in things at that level. And it comes from others' experiences, just like you're saying, is like, hey, have you ever tried, you know, water filtered through Santivia? It's incredible. Oh yeah. yeah. Like I never would have had the balls to drink wild water. I mean, that's just right. such a, like a, a fear and a phobia in our culture, society, like wild water. Like, are you sure? Is this safe? But it, it took a friend of mine going like, yeah, this is incredible. Like I just started doing this. Like it's, it's amazing. I've met people that have been doing this for 30 years. Like, and then that builds that confidence and you try it out for yourself, which brings us to that, that last in the acronym of scope, science, culture, uh, others, experiences, now personal experience, the P, the E, and what is your experience? Because sure, science can say whatever it wants. Maybe culture like reveres it. Everyone else is raving about it and you experience it and you're like, yeah, you know, not not vibing with it not not my food not my medicine right it's got to come right. back to that personal experience now here's here's kind of the caveat we can't again eat or make decisions from one alone right um personal experience you say i don't care what science says you know culture sure they may not have eaten it i'm gonna try this mushroom out of the forest <laughs> right, <laughs> right right that's a good example <laughs> we, we'd be wise to heed you know if there is any scientific literature and you know that it's got deadly chemicals in it um or culture oh actually we we only consume that food in in this way you know and, mm -hmm. and here's what others are saying right like we can fast track our experience we can get to that place of wisdom a lot sooner a lot quicker by incorporating all those lenses and bringing it together and and so you know in in a practical way i use that for my own life but also for the business like you can i'm sure you can imagine like i get approached probably weekly with the latest newest greatest like oh you should carry this i've got this new product you should try out this new superfood and i always right. run it through those lenses right so what's the science saying um culturally uh here's here's a really good example um so for a while quite a while I got really into flax because you know in the raw food movement you're making flax crackers and ah it's all so great and you know everyone's loving it and science it's like it's high in omega-3s it's soluble fiber it's this it's that and uh and that was fine we we're doing what we we're doing with it and then a little while later chia came along and you know for all intents and purposes it it kind of lined up it's like it's high in omega-3 it's good soluble fiber you know you can make these crackers with it and the the piece that flipped it for me was the cultural piece was because if you look at the history of both chia and flax chia actually is a staple the aztecs they revered it as like an energy food they would run on and you know run on it as a as a source of like long stable uh nutrition Whereas flax, the history of it is actually more of an industrial use, like linseed, linseed oil, uh, and it wasn't really consumed as a food. So you got the two, you know, which one are you going to go with? If they all kind of line up more or less, I'm going to go with that cultural piece where they have, you know, used it, revered it, and it's got that long-term, uh, yeah, use and, and reverence. And a I lot love that. That acronym is so potent because it's almost like a, a mental checklist that you can go through and not fix it on any single one of those checklist boxes, but make sure that you've hit them all to give you a, a I guess, a well-rounded perspective to make a good decision. And I think, uh, you know, once you get in the habit of doing that, it's almost like you develop this, pro this pathway in your brain to go through that and, and put it through the filter, right? I think that's a really good, simple 
um, pragmatic filter for people to kind of think of. And I really think that personal experience is something people undervalue. They almost value the, <clears throat> the things that others say more. They doubt themselves before doubting others or science. And I think it should be almost like the opposite. Like, sure, if you're trying a radically different diet, your personal experience might not be super accurate because your body's probably adjusting in a very radical way. But I also think that when you start to be able to speak the language of the body, personal experience becomes, for me, king. It's like that is my last step of the filter. And if I'm honest with myself and I can actually kind of listen to what my body's saying, personal experience is sort of the, the final box I need to check in order for me to ingrain that as something I do. And I just find that a lot of people doubt, doubt that element of it. And I, I really love that that's in there. Cool. Yeah. And maybe, you know, this is a great transition to, to now to where we find ourselves today. I love how you framed it. Like, unfortunately people do automatically, they're, they're the, they first discredit themselves, you know, and there's a lot of deep mm-hmm. roots to that, you know, like there's the personal experience of that. We haven't cultivated that intuitive knowing that intuitive wisdom that we can trust that, that when it comes to, especially sitting down for dinner, you know, we say things like, Hey, what do you feel like eating? right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling like this, right? It is a feeling thing. It's an intuitive thing uh, versus like, well, I think I should eat, you know, the salad, right? Like versus right. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> or it's like, oh, I saw this thing on the news. It said this food's good. Let's go get some of that. It's like, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so let's fast forward to today or, or even seven months ago, you know, six, seven months ago in, in end of March when all this like starts happening, right? And those of us that have been allowed you know, like that have developed our own intuition that have more of a, a connection with our heart and with our health and our journey and our path, like immediately warning bells going like something's not yeah. quite right about this, you know, and, and in those early days, like I would just ask questions, I would just share articles and, you know, people would just like, like attack me, right? Just online, the whole kind of Facebook, social right. media, just like, oh, you're a granny killer. You know, you, you kind of, I would bring up like, oh, look, is it interesting that Sweden is choosing a different path? Um, you know, you're Hitler, you're Nazi, this kind of a thing. Um, yeah, it's so-, so extreme. And I, like, I literally took a week off social media and, and I allocated all the time I would be spending posting or interacting with our community to learning about social media. Like, what are the effects? What is the game theory behind this? You know, who are the people coming out and speaking out and saying like, these are the problems that are there. And this is why it's a hard problem to solve because it's become so deeply ingrained. And, you know, some of the things I learned um, were shocking and made me really like really challenged me to be like, how did we let this get to this point? But on the flip side of that, it also gave me much more clarity at why things have gotten so crazy, right? When you understand that polarization, extremism, um, settling people into their perspective much deeper is actually ingrained into the game theory and incentivized on social media. It's really easy to see how essentially we've extracted our, our deepest kind of tendencies of human wiring in a very negative way because that's what steals our attention. And unfortunately, stealing our attention is extremely profitable, but it's also being done as sort of a race to the bottom of the brainstem, as Tristan Harris says, where it's a competition for who can limbically hijack people the best. And unfortunately, that results in the destruction of our social fabric um, because of profit. And it's, uh, it's, it's hard to solve because the externalities of what's happening because of that essentially get pushed to the side and no one's taking responsibility for them. And I think what it came down to in my brain was like, we need to enable people to better take personal responsibility at how they're using these technologies. Um, And also sort of bring back some of the, the ancient ways of sort of 
asking questions, right? Like having a dialectic, having, having a dialogue where you can hold the multiple perspectives until you kind of reach your own conclusion instead of just trying to defend your position, right? Um, where you can have an actual conversation instead of just an argument of trying to defend your, your position. And it's, it's almost this lost art where we spend so much time in the virtual world, which has become literally algorithmically designed for us, right? Like you are not in control of what you see on social media. It is in control of what you see on, on social media. Um, and we've lost sort of this desire to spend time in the natural world with other human beings free of technology with time in the natural world, which is actually very calm and peaceful and a beautiful refuge from the chaos of, of, of media. And I think people have just lost the balance there, especially now that people are at home now that people are, you know, there's just the suffering or anxiety meter has been cranked so hard that finding distractions in a world that's literally designed around distraction is, is too easy. And, um, and I've, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really strange. It's really strange. And it's really hard to kind of like reconcile, like, how do we get out of this hole? Um, and I think one way is just, if someone's getting angry at you for asking a question, it's very telling of them, right? If, if, a, if you ask a question and it triggers them, uh, I think trying, like one of my struggles is trying to mindfully bring up that me asking a question and upsetting you, like how, why is that? Why is that upsetting you? Like what part of that, I want to understand where that person's coming from. And it often boils down to the fact that just they're more, it's, it's people want to be comforted that what they think of is truth more than actually seeing the, the real truth. And I think that's what it boils down to. And yeah, like that's why I loved your, your videos because they're very grounded. They're very, they make a lot of sense. And they also sort of see, help to see both perspectives. And uh, why don't we, like, I would love to hear how your mindset or how you've sort of seen this thing as it's unfolded as like a Coles notes of like, okay, this is when it started. Cause there's a lot of things that can almost, you can, you can see something and say, that's really sinister. Or you can say like, that is really, really just ignorant. Like right. people, either people don't understand or they're purposely doing it, but either way we need to fix it because it's going to lead to a slippery slope of potentially worse things to come. Um, so how, how's this whole thing been for you? And, you know, how have you changed the way maybe you're approaching the videos that you put out to try and, you know, find a happy medium where people can actually listen instead of just shoving you to the side? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, thanks. Okay. Great transition. And uh, I think, yeah, a couple of points you just mentioned uh, that really kind of resonate and have been an anchor for me, which is um, finding that middle path, right? Knowing that there's, there's people on all sides of the spectrum, all the way from kind of, this is a pandemic, right? There's this kind of evil, malevolent intent, and it's all going down to this is a total pandemic. Um, and yeah, just trying to <laughs> navigate in those, in those waters and be able to have those conversations, trying to find a little bit more of that uh, middle ground. Right. Um, because I think, you know, it's, it's probably a bit of both, you know, to be honest. I agree. Yeah. And I think fundamentally the way to move through this and, and maybe the cause of why we've even ended up here is uh, personal responsibility, which is mm. a great segue of what we're just talking about. We've, we've outsourced the responsibility for our own lives, our own health. And, you know, this is just a natural consequence of the government stepping in and going, okay, someone needs to fix this. It's, it's me. I'm, I'm daddy. I'm big brother. Um, right. It's, we have a responsibility of, of having abdicated that self-responsibility. 
know that as a business owner, everybody wants freedom, everybody wants uh, kind of that, that idea, but we're not willing to have the res responsibility of, of what comes with that. We live in a culture where we'd much rather blame, especially if life doesn't go the way that, that we wanted it to, that we wished it would have. Um, right. Didn't see the signs along the way that we have the power, we can change, we need to take responsibility and you end up, even if something kind of sidelines you and, you know, like maybe you did have a lot of responsibility in your life and you're moving it the way that you wanted. And then just something happens. Uh, we still, then we don't take responsibility. It's easier to, um, you know, blame something, you know, the America is the worst for, you know, suing, right? Like someone else is responsible. Well, right. the result that we get uh, is we give away our power and the government starts making these decisions for us. And those of us, I think that's partly what's been so frustrating. Those of us that can kind of see through this, that have our own, you know, internal sense of, of how to navigate through this world, they're going, this, this is not right. This is not the, the, the direction. This is not how you would deal with this. Um, and we, we've been taking personal responsibility and it's this kind of tug of war now where uh, we're not able to act and live in a way that we see as best fit. And I think ultimately it's, it's a good thing in, in the sense that, you know, uh, again, I was talking with my friend Daniel right back when this happened and, and uh, you know, he's been in, you know, more the kind of the prepper mentality. He sees kind of the, the foils and the follies of, of our kind of modern civilization. And there's always been that question of like, well, how long can this go? Like right. at some point there's gotta be a shift, right? The path, the trajectory we're on is just not, you know, sustainable. And uh, th this is it. Here it is. Like, I really do believe there's, there's that joke. Um, it's a meme going around that, you know, when somebody asked, asked me, you know, about the fall, I thought they were talking about the collapse of civilization. They were just talking about, you know, uh, the autumn outside. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think, I, I really think that this whole situation um, has actually highlighted a bunch of different things that were pre-existing, but were sort of under uh, the radar of common consciousness, like like the health crisis. Like we we've had a health crisis for a long time. Oh yeah, that people haven't really been talking about, um, and we we just never really had a reason to talk about it. Or uh, and then this thing just shone a spotlight on it, where the focus is. You know, it's just a misdirected focus, I think. Like, we should be talking about how to be healthy. And all we're talking about is things like masks or things like vaccines. It's like the conversation seems to have taken just a wrong turn where this could be something that actually opens our eyes and forces us, uh, not forces us, but like really gives a strong nudge for us to pay attention to our health, to pay attention to our body's ability to naturally defend itself. And, and the fact that biodiversity is actually what we require for health, not trying to get rid of anything and everything and being in this constant battle with nature, with our habitat, with our environment, with each other. And it's so, it's so strange. And it's such a missed, I, I really feel it's such a missed opportunity because the government simply does, isn't taking the perspective of trying to help people take personal responsibility, right? Like you said, it's like once you give away that responsibility, it can sometimes be really hard to take that back um, because the people who have taken that responsibility essentially start on a path, which is like a freight train with so much momentum. That's really hard to stop. Um, and I, I really think that this whole evil pandemic thing, I think there's very little of that. There's probably going, there's always bad players in the game. There always is, but there's so few and far between. And if you are of that camp and you love learning about that side of things, your entire environment on social media, which most people spend way more time in the virtual environment than the natural one, 
will seem like there's evil people everywhere trying to pull strings. And it's really easy to just basically give up and be like, well, there's no hope. They have all the power. When in reality, it's like, you still have a part to play. You can still, you have to, you affect yourself. You affect the people you surround yourself with. You affect your local community. And I think if we all, I love how in one of your videos, you said, if we all said no to this, it would be over tomorrow. And I, I can't help but like, I, that always goes through my head sometimes when I see things that are just so sad. I'm like, oh, if only, if only we all said no, we value our freedom. Um, and, and it's also this false dichotomy where it's like, okay, you can either choose your freedom or your health. And it's right. such a bullshit dichotomy. Like, yeah. let's talk about how, how did that come about? And, and what are, like, so many things are being told to us. Like, oh, it's just a mask. Wear a mask for others. Like, there's so much psychological manipulation going on um, that are basically preying on our better nature as humans, but are actually creating this sense of, oh, this sense of disaster, essentially, where it's like we're manipulating people to do things that are essentially forfeiting their freedom in a well-intentioned way from the individual perspective, but are actually, I feel like are leading us to forfeiting more and more of our freedoms. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. It's, it's, it's a total mess. And it, it's just been this cascade of, you know, one overreaction over another. Uh, and, and the big, one of the big tipping points was like, you know, the NBA is like shutting down its season. And then I remember that just like hearing that on the news and then it was the next thing, the next thing, and the next thing. And then all of a sudden, like we're, we're into these lockdowns and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's wild times and, and it is hard to navigate. And I've been describing it, uh, I guess, internally, I haven't really kind of vocalized it too much out that it's really a virus of the mind in, in yeah. the sense of exactly what you talked about. If someone's like deeply caught in this kind of pandemic kind of world, right, then you just start spinning in this, this cycle of like, this is what's going on, this is what's going on, and that drives that narrative, just the right. same as like, oh my gosh, there's this deadly virus like out to get me lurching on every single corner and surface and coming out of everyone's mind. Whereas the reality is actually, you know, far from the truth of both those uh, polarities. Uh, and yeah, if we all <laughs> just, you know, I know there's tons of memes and it kind of goes along with what I said in terms of like, if we just said, no, this, this would stop. If we just like turned off the media, if we just like, just stopped all, all this literally would just fall away. And I think that's, that's one of our challenges. That's one of the lessons that's being called to us. Like you say, we're spending so much time absorbed in, in other, other people's ideas and opinions and, and, you know, mm -hmm. like media, social media, uh, and not enough time in our own hearts, our own bodies, our own worlds, uh, that we're, we're just getting kind of dragged around through all this. Right. Yeah. And like, even the, the really big problems that, that are hard for me to stomach are all of these, um, like opposing viewpoints, like just so many conflicting viewpoints that make no sense when taken together. Like I remember when, um, so I started a physio practice, which uh, I'm not, I'm not an owner anymore, but he's a good friend of mine. And I remember when they literally shut his clinic down. So it's a physiotherapy clinic. People, you know, people go there when their, their bodies hurt and they shut him down. And yet the liquor control board of Ontario, which is the which is the organization that sells alcohol to the public owned by the government was open. So right. when they say, yeah, we're going to close essential, we're going to close non-essential businesses since when, did a physio medical clinic become less essential than buying alcohol? Like that is such a, a blatant um, sort of like, 
I, I just couldn't reconcile that. I was like, who do I talk to about this? Who do I even ask a question about this? What is the, what is the logic being used? And, and it's more of a concern that there is no logic being used, which is very alarming because it's like, how the hell are we going to find our way if the person doesn't even know what target they're aiming at and are making completely random decisions? And that was a really hard one to stomach. And then there's so many other ones that come out. It's like, if the type of mask doesn't matter, then is it really about the mask or is it just about telling you to do something and making sure that you do it? Um, and it, that's, you know, I, I remember a friend of mine told me that um, the Chinese would use this tactic for interrogating spies where they would actually start to get them to agree with little things. They would, they would find points where the person would agree with. And they had essentially a cascade of agreement where the, the you know, the, the person ended up divulging information because they were essentially saying yes to things and agreeing with things. And then by the end, you're agreeing to something that you would, would never have agreed with initially. Right. And that really made me think of a parallel to, to now where it's like, oh, it's just this. It's just, you're not, it's not that much of an inconvenience. But where does that lead us? Like, where do we end up with that mindset? And it's, it's sort of uh, a little bit worrying. Yeah, totally. And, you know, like just a mask, there's a lot of people that have the potentially very legitimate fear of, okay, well, it's just a mask now. It'll be just a vaccine coming up. It'll be just a microchip or, you know, wherever that path is going to lead. Um, but it also, in the sense of just a mask, still continues that, that narrative fear that you need to fear other people. You need to fear germs. And we need mm -hmm. to kind of reconcile this, uh, you know, germ theory versus terrain theory. And mm -hmm. there's, there's lots on both sides of the camp. And again, I think there's, that wisdom is to be found in the middle. It's like, yes, there are certain germs and pathogens and viruses that we need to be aware of. But ultimately, if we have that foundation of the terrain, uh, I like to give the analogy, it's the swamp breeds the mosquitoes. The mosquitoes don't create the swamp, right? So right. what's your internal environment? Um, do you have, you know, a healthy, robust immune system that can withstand, you know, many of these different bacteria and viruses that in fact, you know, within our a healthy microbiome are, are uh, symbiotic, you know, in that sense. Right. And I love listening to Zach Bush talk because he just takes such a macro view of, of things. And he talks about the virome and he talks about a virus as a software update. Uh, given to all of us based on an area of the world where humans were severely stressed and needed to essentially have an adaptive piece of genetic material to, to allow us to, to adapt to the, the new environment that we've essentially created by putting all these toxins in, in the environment, whether it's the air or the land or the water. And when he talks about it, he's like, why would we stop a beneficial software update? Like we're literally fighting against something that is exists to help us. Um, and, and like, that's not a popular perspective. When you say that it, you lose people. And, you know, this, like you said before, if you're in that wheel spinning into your perspective, into that perspective that, you know, this is the way you frame things. Um, the more times you go through that cycle, the more deeply ingrained you become, the more personally invested you become in that perspective, such that any other perspective is not even the cognitive dissonance of even entertaining a different perspective is so high and is so difficult Right. Because I think that's part of it is like it's work to ask questions. It's work yeah. to take responsibility. It is very, very easy, comfortable and convenient to blame, shame, complain, you yeah. know, and it's so I think it's and especially now. I mean, you yeah. and I, here we are in this moment of like, what is going on in society? Like how crazy, how complex, how like, you know, utterly hopeless one can feel. It's so easy just to go, OK, I'll just I got to listen to the government. They'll sort it out, you know. Right. 
Like that's, that's the easy position to take. Um, but it's, it's going to take, you know, multiple levels. I think, you know, everything that we've talked about so far this morning in terms of, you know, personal health responsibility, like that is the foundation and the more that yep. we can, you know, and, and, and it's why for me, you know, through light seller, like, you know, since March hit, like, actually, in fact, I've come more into my own purpose of being than any other time, right? Literally help people find and learn how to craft their own food and medicine, like coming right. to that, back to that state of sovereignty and health and well-being. Hugely, that's got to be foundational. And we also need to work at this kind of power structure on, on a macro level, working with governments. Like, you know, so many of us have taken advantage of our freedom and how things operate and how society functions. You know, you just kind of ignore it. You take your freedom for granted. You take, you know, take all these systems for granted. And mm -hmm. I wasn't participating. And I don't believe it is the best system ever. I'm not a big advocate of, of democracy and you know I'm going to vote this way or that way I, I think that is also a system that needs <laughs> completely changed and overhauled you know like yep. democracy is great if if you know say it's you me and a couple of buddies and we're like where do we want to go for dinner well let's all take a vote right like <laughs> right. that works <laughs> yes but this idea of that I can vote for a representative who's going to speak for me and you know 10 million other people like that's obviously not working but it's a system we have so you know yeah. I have been writing letters uh, to you know the city council to the provincial level the federal level um, you know the school like all we need to you know, influence those people as much as possible as well to kind of change it from the bottom up um, as well as our own, you know, personal selves. And where do you think, because try and think sometimes it's like, okay, you're right. Democracy as a concept when it works well is very romantic. And I think it's probably better than a lot of the alternatives, but where is our, where is the system breaking down? Right. And like, one thing I'm seeing is the complete lack of accountability or transparency from the decision makers being able to inform the people whose lives are being affected by decisions made, right? Like, like how different would it be if before a thought experiment, before a mask mandate came out, you literally saw a video of a group of people making decisions, doing like circling and, and having literally disagreements and bringing different perspectives to the table and then reaching the final agreement with with all these factors taken into account that this is the best way to protect people that is a very different situation than like in ottawa overnight they said masks are mandatory everywhere it is not it's, there's no option and when as soon as i heard that i instantly thought of a conversation that i had with a friend of mine at some point she does um she was doing a phd in research and she was talking to me for at length about the uh, ethics review board process that she had to go through to approve a study that involved humans um, and how it was the most rigorous thing she had ever been through and the most frustrating experience because of how much you have to prove that this is a safe thing to do. You need so much and you need radical informed consent. You need the ability to remove yourself from the study at any time with no questions asked. And I was like, you have to get an ethical review board to approve a very, um, plain Jane, fairly honest study that literally you'd have to literally search very hard to find out how that could be dangerous. We just subscribed the entire population of our province into a, into a research experiment involving humans where we have zero data to show that like no one's ever talked about the negatives of masks. And this is a big problem 
for me because it shows that it's probably not even something being considered, let alone the fact that we don't even have a control group to see if this experiment is harming people. Like it's, yeah. it's very concerning how we throw all of these things that we put in place after like Nazi Germany did experiments on humans. We put these catrains in place to make sure that was never abused. And then we just throw it out the window and make everyone do something without any understanding of the effects, good or bad. And it's yeah. just like, what? How did, who okayed that? Who signed off on that? <laughs> well, for sure, which is when you can easily slip into these kind of conspiracy ideas, right? right. Uh, because it is being forced top down. There, there, there is no democracy. There's no discussion. There's no like... Right. Yeah, I, I love that example of like so many other aspects of life from, you know, peer review boards to even public debates. Like, you know, in Calgary, the whole idea of like fluoride has been debated for decades and it keeps kind of coming in and out. And, and mm -hmm. this one is, is as serious, more serious uh, with, with no debate at all, right? Just kind of handed this mandate of here's the direction we're going and this is, this is what we're all going to do. And yeah, yeah it's, it's total insanity. And it's interesting you know, data is coming out. So it, it is giving some of like you and I and, and those that are listening a bit more stability, a bit more ground to stand on. But it's fear. People are just so paralyzed by fear and, and the media keeps, you know, stirring the pot in, in right. that regard. Um, because of course it gets them attention, it gets them ratings. I mean, the, the media has never been so important, right? Like we've all been you know, glued to CBC or whatever your favorite channel is. And, right. um, you know, never mind that the average uh, age of death for, for this COVID is actually three years older than the national life expectancy of Canada, right? So if you die of, of Corona at 84, congratulations, you, you surpassed most people right. with the average life expectancy of, of 80, 81 uh, from other causes. Um, but people can't see that. And you right. know, the mass mandate, the CDC just rela released data that um, it's, upwards of 70% of people who wear masks all the time are the ones actually getting the, the positive tests now. Yeah, and even like foundational things, I think a problem that I've started to have with people is that when you bring up um, points that are foundational to the premise that we've built everything on top of, um, like the fact that a PCR test, like people think a, a positive test means that you, ha you, are, you could die. And even just when you bring up like, what do you know about PCR tests? Like I, everything that I've come across shows that it's not actually a really good test to be able to use. And, and like you bring that up, people are like, what are you talking about? We wouldn't be using them if they didn't actually work to prove what, what we're trying to prove. And I'm like, I don't even think I can go down that road because like they've already made up their mind. Yeah. And it's like there's so many layers built upon this really shaky foundation that even just questioning the foundation, not saying you know what the truth is, but just being like, are these tests accurate to prove what, what, we, what, we're, what information we're garnering from them? Are they a source of, of having to be scared of this thing? If there's more cases, does that mean there's more people sick or dying? Like, they're just questions. If you take the Socratic method, but you take it to the deepest layer, people just discount and being like, what are you talking about? Obviously, our government knows what's up. And then it's like, I really wish that was true. But I, I've, my faith in that has started to be like very weak. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And, and the whole idea of, of asymptomatic carriers that you can be carrying this disease and you'll spread it to people and not even know it. Like it's right. the most insane thing that people are going to get tested for something for, yeah. And like you say, like, Oh, I've got this disease, but you know, no symptoms. Like, 
you know, you wouldn't have any idea. Um, and you're right, like most of it, some would say even 100%. Uh, New York Times said about 90%. Ontario Public Health Minister said uh, 50%. So we're, talk we're not talking small numbers, like huge 50% all the way up to 90, 100 of false positives. Yeah, and right. it comes down to this foundation of, is this even the test uh, that we should be using? But yeah, when people get into this kind of fear mode, uh, that yeah. type of logic uh, doesn't, doesn't come through. Yeah, and I think um, not knowing is, can be a source of anxiety. So it's better to know something that might even be false and feel a sense of security that things are being done with reason and, and decisions are being made based on like data and all that kind of stuff. It's easier to lock into that than to shed that and be like, I, and just go into the unknown and accept that we don't know very much right now because that's an uncomfortable place to be. But it also, I think, is the only place you can be to be open-minded to asking questions, being curious. Yeah. Um, maybe a good place to bring this to be a little bit more optimistic is, you know, we talk about personal responsibility, both with health and with just asking questions about our current situation. How does, you know, someone comes up to you and says, Malcolm, I've heard you talk about personal responsibility. I have no idea what that means. How do I begin taking personal responsibility for my experience and starting to, you know, helping to steer this thing in a positive direction? Where do I start? Yeah, for sure. Well, starts with uh, with the food we eat. Absolutely. Um, you know, not only is that going to make us healthier, more resistant uh, to any kind of disease pathogens. I mean, they've said this is the era of, of pandemics. We're moving to the age of biosecurity. Uh, health is going to be the, the buzzword, you know, for your safety and all these things. And the more we can kind of just disconnect from that and just create robust health, uh, mm -hmm. for ourselves um, through everything we talked about, you know, and, and most specifically choosing natural foods, whole foods, um, you know, moving away from that industrial scale. Like, and, and there is that shift, there is that momentum away from Wall Street, you know, to Main Street, relocalizing our food. And I'm not talking about 100 mile diet, I thought, although I think that that's great kind of um, ideology. I'm, I'm definitely more of like an 80-20 type of person. If you can get, you know, the majority of your calories, especially the fresh foods, your meats, your vegetables, etc., from within your local region, and then 20% is, is like the spice of life. It's the, it's the exotics and the erotics. It's, right. you know, the herbs from around the world um, to kind of supplement that. Uh, that's the foundation. And, and as we choose that, we literally shape uh, the world in, in a different way. As soon as we stop plugging into this industrialized system, um, we're, we're creating something new, uh, local economies. Uh, and again, we can see that it's already happening, you know, the farmer's market and a lot of us that are kind of going in that direction, we're, we're seeing that old system fall, which, which we knew had had to, and, and, and we have a choice. So first and foremost comes, comes with food, uh, personal responsibility, and, and then having the conversations where you can, like some people, I hate to say it, you know, like you won't be able to convince them. It'll, it'll just turn into an argument and, and you just got to walk away. But those that you can see, maybe there's a little bit of light, a little bit of angle to kind of bring in. Just again, like you say, start asking those questions. Uh, you know, does this make sense? Right. Like why are strip clubs open? But, you know, gyms are not like, you know, what do you oh think? That's so crazy, dude. Just saying that makes me laugh. I'm like, this, we're living in a weird, like, I don't even know if this is reality anymore. It's weird. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, I think having conversations is big. Like at my family dinners, we have two family dinners every week. My family, or my parents are separated. So we have one dinner with my mom, one dinner with my dad, my whole family's there. And it's funny because initially we were like, no C word at the table. We didn't want to talk about it because it always resulted in just a lot of friction, a lot of tension. Um, and then I think we've gotten to a point where like, it's actually really good to talk about because it's something that it's affecting us all. Yeah. And it's a good exercise to be able to have conversations where we can kind of listen to understand, not just listen to, to reply. And uh, it's been really good because we're all sort of giving our different perspectives and where we're getting them from. And, you know, one thing that I found is that, you know, doing some media distancing, right? The one distancing I think people should do more of is from the media, whether that's social media or, or mainstream media. Um, it actually creates, I've found, creates a bit of space to make sense of whatever data I've already got. Right. So instead of constantly getting new input and trying to essentially layer on more things to sort mentally, it allows you to reconcile whatever your current thoughts are and then allows you to trickle in new information to then reconcile that and, and synthesize it into your perspective. And um, I also think it makes you less deeply entrenched in your own perspective because the algorithms know what to throw at you to make you, you know, pay attention. And, um, and I just think that little bit of space where you're spending more time with yourself or with other humans uh, having good conversations, asking questions and leaning into uncomfortable conversations that you may be, you know, it's convenient not to have a conversation about COVID-19, but it's also really nourishing to have a, a, a healthy conversation with someone who you can have beautiful disagreements with. And then and instead of saying, well, no, that's not the truth. This is the truth. Be like, where'd you get that info from? Because maybe I should be looking at that. You know, like, I think just taking this perspective of being able to hold multiple um, versions of reality before you make a decision, which one is the truth. Um, and also just being really flexible, right? Being flexible that changing your mind is okay. Um, yeah. I think people, people feel that changing your mind, that little space, it's like the analogy I like is the hermit coming out of its shell, like having your shell and having your interpretation of reality is super safe, right? Whether that shell is, is good or not. Um, having to, kind of walk to different shells and experiment with what those perspectives are like leaves you vulnerable in the space in between to being like, I don't know what's going on right now. This is really scary. But I've started to try and lean into that and feel good in that middle space because it means that I'm actually on my way to discover different things. And I think if we just all take the perspective that we all need to be nice to each other, we're all doing our best and we should also all be asking questions to challenge each other to like figure out what is the truth, right? Like sense making only happens collectively. We cannot do it alone in the environment of information overload. And uh, I think people like yourself um, and some other people that I follow that are really just leading by example. And, and, you know, like I love how you sometimes start a video with a question, this or this, how is this affecting you? And I'm just like, shit, that's a really good question. And I'll kind of sit with it for a bit. And it's very helpful to have those um, almost STEM questions provided for you because I don't think most people are even have the sort of repertoire to be able to ask themselves that. So I think that's where media can be really helpful. And people just have to curate their inputs better because um, yeah. either you're curating them or they're being curated for you probably not in a good direction. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so, that's good. And uh, so that, that brings up two more points uh, I'd like to emphasize. You, you've talked about uh, essentially building community and, you know, building community, starting at the family level, you know, how, how important is that, right? And also with people that have, might have different or opposing views. I think that's very healthy. Oftentimes, like you say, that hermit shell, that crab, we tend to want to just hang with other hermit shells and crabs, right? Like, yep. you don't want to have those difficult conversations. Um, so 
but we, we, we lose the opportunity to kind of expand our perceptions, but also influence others as well. Mm-hmm. So community is huge. Again, it fits with that food piece as well, like a relocalization um, and just focusing more on, on building and strengthening community. One of the things that I did uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I've been thinking about wanting to do this because I was envied, you know, friends of mine that had really truly built community. You know, I live on a street with like, you know, 20 other residences and going into it, you know, I've been here almost five years and I, I barely know the people. Right. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, as we go through this, this is one aspect that I want to change about my life. I want to meet the neighbors. I want to like, actually truly build community and not just community within my like little health food bubble, which I've done a great job of. It's like, I want to expand that. So that's been a big key part. And I think that is a part of uh, how we all uh, can and and should and and need to move forward. And the other point that you had mentioned as well, which triggered a thought for me, which is, is disconnecting from media and really just being with yourself, especially in nature, um, just to have that time, that quiet, you know, meditative, uh, however you want to interpret it. Um, and yeah, that, that space alone is, is just so valuable. I mean, let, let's, let's, even if we said the worst case scenario, right, actually the world is coming to an end, the virus, whatever it is, is, is deadly or it's not, but society is collapsing. It's almost like a cancer diagnosis, right? It's like life as you knew it is done. It's over. Well, what would you do? You would start valuing yourself, time with yourself. You'd start valuing relationships in building those bonds with family, with neighbors, enriching your life. Uh, I think the, uh, you know, the kind of the way forward is, is very similar and whether it's for a short time, like, Oh, you know, cancer does get you or civilization does collapse or it actually creates a new way that you move through it. Either way, it's, it's, it's the best thing in the moment that's going to make you feel good and enrich your life regardless of, of what the outcome is. Yeah. And I think the whole, you know, when you said relocalization regarding food, it really made me realize that, like, I think that's a big key of how we can move forward in a constructive way is the relocalization of decision making, right? So that your community, you know, like what happened to the town hall that people could actually go to and, and, and play a part, literally an active part in the decisions being made in their area instead of these sweeping provincial decisions that rule everyone. It's like, why don't we look at smaller local areas where people can actually come to a common place if they're interested in voicing their opinion, they can interact, they can share opinions, they can speak to the person who's their representative. So. I think it's easy to throw democracy out, like it's easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I think the, the model of a participatory democracy is very, it can be well executed, but will require, like you said, it, we can't just make permutations on the current system because it's so far away from the way that optimal democracy would work that we need to literally just tip it upside down and say, okay, the foundation sucks. Let's just tear this building down and let's all play a part in making something we can all be sort of proud of from the foundation up. And I think the relocalization of building communities of decision-making at the local level, um, I think is a big part of where we need to go to give people a sense of safety. And, and like you said, community so important. I think most, it's hard to have a template for that word if you just kind of have heard it in passing, but I think, you know, looking at ourselves as relational beings who make sense of the world in relation to others, not independently, means that we need to communicate with others, real communication, like in-person communication, um, yeah. not just over screens. And um, anyway, I want to, uh, that's, that's an hour, 90 minutes goes by really fast. Um, so <laughs> I'd love to chat again in future about um, fungi, because that's something that 
I've just gotten so enamored with and, and amazed with, you know, I ha- we have this little piece of land um, about 45 minutes out of Ottawa and I literally go there for six hours every Saturday and walk around and chop wood. And it's the most fulfilling thing that I do these days. And I look forward to it every week, but um, just going through and, you know, typically I would have just walked through the forest. And then I started like trying to take a really sharp focus lens to observing the ground. And I was like, Oh my God, there's mushrooms everywhere. What are these mushrooms? What can I do with them? What kind? And so I bought this field guide. That's like a Bible of mushrooms. And I just found it so interesting. So I'd love to hear um, maybe in future uh, on a different episode, like how you got into that and what you found and, and the ways that you've started to use fungi as a way to, for healing, but also just as a food source. And, and I, Really excited for that. So um, in, in sort of like some closing questions, I would lo- I, I've started to like to ask people uh, this question because I think there's so many different perspectives. But when someone says health, what is, you know, what is your concise definition of, uh, of health? Because I think it's so, it's so personalized for a lot of people reflecting their lived experience. And I think you have a very unique one. So when someone says, Malcolm, what does health mean to you? What do you say? Yeah, for sure. So uh, that's a great question. Um, I think it is, I mean, it's health, you know, on all levels, uh, personally, you know, your physical health, but also internally and it's socially, it's, uh, you know, some family relationships, community, all that. Um, yeah, so it's a lining up of, of many different factors. And, and when it comes to your own physical health, maintaining it in a way that you're able to, you know, engage and express yourself uh, through life, you know, mm-hmm. that, that the, the inspirations and, and the fancies that your spirit has, uh, that your, your body is a physically able to kind of take you there and, and carry that with you. Uh, and you're able to execute it, you know, in this physical reality, that's, that's kind of the ultimate that we want to achieve and, and maintain. And I think uh, the body is self-healing, self-repairing, self-regenerating, and health is just about aligning with it, learning the language, the communication of the body, tuning into our senses and, and making decisions, uh, like we talked about through that kind of food scope, uh, considering the science, looking at culture, others' opinions, and, but ultimately that, that personal experience. So that's, wow. I feel what it is and, and how we get there. Nice. That's a great definition. I love that. Um, so uh, just in closing, if there's any closing words or, or maybe even just let people know where to find out more about you, because uh, you are the Malchemist on, uh, I love that name, <laughs> the Malchemist on social media. For anyone listening, I highly recommend you check out some of Malcolm's videos. They're all very, very relevant, even if you go back like a month. And I think it's cool to, I watched a bunch of them this morning to see kind of the progression of your way of thinking. And um, I love a lot of the thought provoking videos that you do just asking questions. And, you know, the, the struggle with like we, the way I look at it, TFC is a company that exists to give people back responsibility for their health. And, you know, the, the, it's really cool to have a platform that reaches people globally, but it's really hard to have discussions about things like uh, the Corona situation and, and just having discussions about it because it's so like the situation here is going to be radically different than everywhere else. And people, I think myself included, forget that it is completely uh, different based on where you are locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can oftentimes stir the pot and maybe in a bad way to say something that affects you locally that other people in different areas will see as being like, that is not the truth. And it's like, well, it's different depending where you are, but, um, yeah. So the Malcolmist on Instagram, where else can people find you? Um, yeah, if they so want to learn more. 
at Light Cellar is where really kind of the, the food and nutrition conversations are happening. Um, so that's through Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, etc. Also lightcellar.ca. So we're based out of Calgary. If anybody's <clears throat> in the Calgary area, come on by. I'd love to uh, connect in person. Uh, but online works too. We have uh, lots of courses as well. If you want to learn how to get into elixir crafting or making your own chocolate or fermenting your own food. Uh, all that is also available online. So lightcellar.ca and as you said, the Malchemist uh, on Instagram. And yeah, it's been been a joy, a pleasure, an honor to uh, connect this morning and, and share and, and have this conversation. So thanks for the opportunity. No worries, Malcolm. Thanks for your time, for everyone listening. We hope you enjoyed that and we'll catch you next week.